Father, we thank you that everything about the church service is so simple, so powerful by your Holy Spirit. All of it connected to our relationship with you. To be able to worship you, to lean toward you, to kiss you as the word means, and to ascribe worth to you, to communicate all of the things that we have such a need to communicate to you because of how good you are to us. And now as we turn to your word, we pray that it would be in that same realm of relationship. And we pray that, Lord, you would speak into our relationship, that you would speak to us in our heart and in our mind and the privacy of our hearts and minds as we study your word. We pray that you would open it up to us and speak to us through it. And we ask for this work of your Spirit tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Good evening. Please be seated. Acts chapter 18 this evening. Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we find ourselves here in uh, Acts chapter 18. Just a reminder as we're turning there, uh, next Sunday lands on Christmas Eve, and uh, so uh, we will... Uh, have our more normal morning services with, uh, of course, a Christmas focus. And then this eve- uh, a week from uh, this service, we will have a, an hour-long uh, communion service, Christmas Eve service. All of the family and everyone will uh, come uh, into the room uh, that night. This is an interesting section of Scripture that we come to here tonight in the end of uh, chapter 18 in that in verse 23, um, uh, Luke records the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. And then he heads into this kind of parenthetical passage, like a pause, and uh, before beginning to describe uh, the continuance of that third missionary journey in earnest uh, there in chapter 19, verse 1. And the pause is kind of surrounds a, a single individual um, by the name of Apollos. And so it's almost like um, the Holy Spirit is inspiring uh, Luke and then uh, we'll say in a sanctified fashion uh, at this particular point he decides to uh, shoehorn in this account related to Apollos uh, into the passage before continuing the chronology And so I'll feel no guilt tonight uh, for uh, shoehorning uh, a topical study or uh, character study concerning concerning Apollos uh, into our series through the book of Acts. You notice in verse 23, after he had spent some time here, he departed and went over to the region of Galatian, Pergia, in order, strengthening all the disciples. Here's the beginning of that missionary, third missionary journey. And then, now there was a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures. He came to Ephesus, and this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. And so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Aquila and Priscilla heard them, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, 
the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And so at chapter 18, as I mentioned, it records for us both the end of the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey, uh, the beginning of his third missionary journey, following about an 18-month ministry in the city of Corinth. The Apostle Paul brought an end to his second missionary journey. He returned to his sending church of Antioch there in Syria. And on the journey home, it covered a distance of about 1,500 miles, and it included a very short stop in the city of Ephesus uh, on the way, which is where we left things off in chapter uh, 18, where Paul then went into the synagogue there, as was his custom. He reasoned with the Jews there uh, concerning Jesus as their promised Messiah from the Old Testament Scriptures. His message was very, very well received, and the members of the synagogue wanted him to stay on longer and continue his handling of the Scriptures to them, and uh, something that he wasn't able to do because he was uh, eager to return home uh, to the sending church of Antioch, but even more uh, in order to keep a vow that he had made uh, in, in approaching, uh, attending and being in Jerusalem at the approaching Jewish feast there. A married couple by the name of Aquila and Priscilla, both of them Christians, we remember last week that they met Paul uh, in the city of Corinth. Aquila was a tent maker just like Paul was, and so they served as tent makers during the day or the most of the day, and then clearly uh, Aquila uh, was also someone who served side by side with Paul in Corinth. And he traveled then with Paul from Corinth to the city of Ephesus. And uh, Paul then left Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus to carry on uh, the work that he had begun there in those few short handling of, of the word uh, in, in order to protect what had be begun there until his return, which would ultimately be about uh, a year uh, later. In verse 23, very understatedly, it describes the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey there, where he, we're told that he uh, apparently revisited the churches that he had established uh, on his uh, earlier missionary journeys in order to strengthen them. These would have been cities of Derby in Lystra, Iconium, and others before returning then to the city of Ephesus in order to establish what would be one of the most significant churches in the early church in the city of, of Ephesus, which is the focus of chapter 19. But in between these second missionary journey and the formal start of the third missionary journey in terms of the narrative, two tremendous events occur in church history. Now, the Holy Spirit does something really incredible. He pauses this narrative on the early church to introduce us to a man by the name of Apollos. And through his introduction to Apollos, uh, not, uh, to not only educate us concerning uh, the start of Apollos in his very significant ministry in, in the early church, but also to teach us a very important lesson from his life that applies to each of our lives as Christians, 
our own relationship with the Lord and, uh, and our Christian service as well. Apollos, he arrived in Ephesus and his in- introduction to Aquila and Priscilla is recorded for us. Uh, while ministering in Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla are awaiting the return of the Apostle Paul there. And evidently, they were attending the synagogue services during that time. And so one Sabbath day, uh, a recent arrival into Ephesus, uh, a Jewish teacher was given the floor to preach the sermon that morning in the synagogue. And uh, I think without a doubt, in, in a shock to Aquila and Priscilla, this man uh, stood up and he began to boldly preach New Testament truth. He began to preach something that uh, uh, very nearly resembled uh, the gospel. You notice the, and, and that person was Apollos himself, and you notice the description of Apollos by the Holy Spirit in our passage, and the description is uh, significant. Uh, he is someone that I really look forward to uh, meeting one day, and uh, is the kind of person that leaves quite an impression upon anyone that he would meet. Very gifted, very talented, very uh, advantaged man as he's described to us in verses 24 and 25. In verse 24, he's described as being a Jew. We're told further in verse 24 that he was born in Alexandria. Alexandria was the second largest city at that time in the entire Roman Empire. It was the the capital of northern Egypt. It was a center for... Uh, uh, education and philosophy. It was a university town. It was famous in the ancient world for its library. Ultimately, before it was uh, burned to the ground, the library contained 700,000 volumes and uh, very remarkable in a day in which every single book had to be written uh, by hand. And so, uh, the, the marvel of having that kind of a library in the city. The city of Alexandria was completely dominated by Grecian thought or Hellenistic thought and culture. And there was also a very large Jewish colony in the city. And in New Testament times, we're told that Jews made up about one-third of the population of uh, Alexandria. So it was a great center not only of Greek and Gentile learning and, uh, and culture, but also a great center of Jewish culture and, uh, and learning and literature. It was interestingly enough, the uh, Jews of Alexandria who provided the world with what is known as the Septuagint, Uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures uh, in the ancient world. And so this was a city that Apollos was born into and he was raised in. Not only steeped in Jewish culture, not only steeped in Jewish uh, learning, but also heavily steeped in Hellenistic and Gentile culture and learning. And it would have been the city to be in in the ancient world at this time in order to gain the broadest exposure uh, to culture in his day. And to be raised in that city was to, be, to produce a very unique uh, human being and individual in the person of, of Apollos. And all of this 
uh, produced a very valuable instrument for God's purposes. Apollos was doubtless a highly educated man, but his gifting and his talent didn't end there. We're told further in verse 24 that he was also an eloquent man. And so he was a man who was not only highly educated, a man who was learned, as uh, one translation puts it, but he also possessed the ability to communicate what he knew and to do so with great eloquence. And when I think about Apollos, I think of him as an artist of sorts. He, uh, he, he, he spoke as an artist uh, paints. And what paints are to an artist, words were to him. And not in order to get up and speak and draw attention to himself or to gain uh, recognition, but for the purpose of communication. He was expert at using uh, words in order to express the beauty of the truth that he was communicating and to provoke thought and consideration and appreciation uh, in the audience. There's a certain kind of person who has a tremendous ability to learn, a tremendous ability to amass knowledge to themselves. But he or she has no gift at all to communicate that knowledge. And so very few people can bear to listen to uh, him. Another man or woman can have exactly the opposite problem. He possesses great skill in communication, but he doesn't have anything to say of any substance. And so he or she is highly entertaining, uh, but the listener leaves his presence empty and unsatisfied. And Apollos possessed that wonderful combination of both substance and of eloquence. But Apollos was also a man of great passion. He's described there in verse 25 as fervent in spirit. And the word fervent there means to boil. And I think about those words uh, of what to boil looks like in a speaker uh, uh, to, in, in terms of, uh, of, of that particular function in a person's life. And he spoke the Word of God with force. He spoke it with, one author- with great authority. And I think it's one of the most wonderful things to experience in all of life, to see and to hear great learning and great communication skills coupled with great passion. When the listener recognizes that the speaker is thoroughly engaged in what it is that he is uh, speaking uh, in terms of the subject that he's communicating. And it's when the listener has that sense that the speaker not only has the message, but the message also has uh, the speaker at expressing, expressing passion when communicating anything today, but certainly spiritual things today, is becoming increasingly uh, rare. And I think perhaps in large part because of the weakness of the constitution of our uh, culture uh, and in terms of what our culture is uh, forming in people today. This kind of of learning coupled with this kind of of passion uh, in declaring truth is something that frightens so many people. It threatens them. And so they're quick to kind of label it as hate speech or bigotry or intolerance. And so today you have even the greatest issues of life are proclaimed and they're discussed and they're debated with the same emotion. 
that one might exhibit in describing a tuna fish sandwich at lunch. And we can come to forget that a fervent spirit is a virtue and a child of God, and certainly a virtue in one who speaks for God. And when I listen to a man or a woman discuss the great issues of life, yes, I like them to know what they're talking about, and I like them to be able to communicate well, but I also like to hear some passion, something that tells me that they actually believe what it is that they're saying, what it is that they're communicating that their message not only has a grip on their minds, but also has a grip upon their hearts. Very famously, David Hume, uh, the, the famous 18th century British philosopher who rejected historic Christianity. He was once uh, uh, walking along a street in London, and uh, a friend of his was hurrying along on the same street, and he asked his friend where he was going. And his friend told them that he was hurrying down uh, to the chapel in order to hear George Whitfield preach. And Hume said, but surely you don't believe what Whitfield preaches to you. And his friend said, no, I don't, but he does. And that can be the power of that kind of conviction when something's being declared. Glowingly, the Holy Spirit describes Apollos as fervent in spirit. But as wonderful as education and oratory skills and passion are, they will be utterly wasted unless those same things are provided a great theme, unless they can attach themselves to a great theme. And Apollos, we're told in verse 24, was also a man who possessed a great theme, indeed an inexhaustible theme, for we are told that he was mighty in the Scriptures. He was mighty in the Old Testament Scriptures. And what is described here is more than just an understanding of the Scriptures on some kind of an elementary level or some kind of a surface level. It communicates that he had mastered the Scriptures and in the sense that he understood them very deeply. He could uh, have the ability to look at the Scriptures, see the implications of what it was that God was trying to declare, to separate uh, what it is that was the main point of the passage and the lesser points that built the main point, the application of the passage, the interconnectedness of the Scriptures, the implications of the teaching of the one passage upon another, and then ultimately of the whole book and what Paul would later describe to Timothy as the ability to rightly divide the word of truth. And so here is Apollos, his understanding of the Scriptures was deep, and there was also a depth to the content of his teaching and his preaching. And you notice too in verse 25, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And then further we're told in verse 25 that he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord. Oftentimes you can feel forced in listening to a speaker, sometimes even in church, forced to choose between passion in a speaker uh, and accuracy. And sometimes you can have a, a passionate speaker who lacks accuracy, uh, their trustworthiness to declare accurately what the Bible is teaching is lacking. But in Apollos' ministry, Apollos didn't force any listener into that kind of a choice related to his teaching. 
He was a careful teacher. He possessed a great concern for accuracy in terms of rightly dividing the word of truth. And his motive was not in order to be clever as a Bible teacher or novel or try to find something in the passage that nobody had ever seen before where after that kind of a speaker is done teaching, teaching, you say to yourself, I never saw that in the passage before, only to discover as you kind of reflect upon it later that you had never seen it in the passage before because it doesn't exist in the passage uh, at all. And so, no, Paulus was an accurate teacher of God's Word. He was a careful teacher. You think what an extraordinary man he was and what an extraordinary description of this man were given to us here by the Holy Spirit. But I'm convinced that all of that description that the Holy Spirit gives to us there, all of it merely lays the foundation for the single great thing that the Holy Spirit wants us to learn from this man this evening. Because I'm convinced that to know all of that about him, but to only know that about him, is to know nothing really about him. And I think it's to remain completely in the dark as to the true key of this man's greatness and the thing that allowed God to entrust tremendous influence to him in the kingdom of of God. And in this vein, I want you to notice in verse 25 that we're told that his message was incomplete, that he only knew the baptism of John. So he understood the ministry and the message of John the Baptist He understood the way, verse 25, which is an early name for Christianity in the book of Acts, but it appears that he was unfamiliar with some areas of Christian doctrine, including baptism in the name uh, of Jesus and what it it represented. And to me, what made Apollos great in the eyes of the Holy Spirit was that Apollos was supremely, over and above all of those other things, was that he was a teachable man and that he was a humble man. And you notice that on that Sabbath day as he spoke boldly in the synagogue in Ephesus, Paul's friends, Aquila and Priscilla, as they sat there and as they listened, they noticed that what he taught concerning Christianity and the Christian faith, it was accurate as far as it went, but it was also incomplete. And so they went out after the service and they headed down to a local restaurant and after the service they made fun of his ignorance between one another laughing at the church group that was in the booth with them. Or they cornered him immediately after the service and began to argue with him about uh, about the sermon. Or they headed home and they uh, got on the internet and immediately reported Apollos to one of the discernment ministries and labeling him on, uh, on the blog as a false teacher and someone who is a heretic before the whole world and, uh, and, and to do it before the day was, was over. And yet they did none of those things. And you notice in verse 26 that they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. They took him aside. In other words, they instructed him privately. And aren't you uh, glad that most of what the Lord speaks to you and I, he does privately uh, in our lives. And uh, it shows the tremendous wisdom and maturity on their part to teach people in this regard 
as privately as possible, just as God does with us. And people notice it when we do that, and they appreciate it. And the Holy Spirit takes note of it here as well, and it, it pleases Him because it's, it is to be like God. They notice, notice in verse 26, they explain to Him the way of God more accurately. So they explained to Apollos. That was their tone. They didn't rebuke him or yell at him or condemn him. They explained and uh, didn't want to make him feel foolish. You can wipe out a person's confidence very early in their ministry by treating them uh, in that way. And uh, so they come to him with a humility of their own. And I just think to myself, praise the Lord for Aquilas and Priscilla's who take the time and in our culture take the risk to give a, 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 a tip or a helpful hint to another Christian or to a fellow minister in order to make our service even more effective. And to his credit, you notice that Apollos was completely teachable. And he accepted their instruction. And there's a beautiful humility that's demonstrated in this. Very, very often in Christian circles, when you have people who have Apollos' talent and his gifting and his calling and his anointing and even far less than what he had, they can cease to be humble or teachable. And notice, too, that here the great and talented and gifted Apollos was willing to be instructed by a tent maker. And more shockingly in that ancient culture, to be instructed by the wife of a tent maker. And shocking in any age to be corrected by someone within the congregation. And here he is, if you put yourself in his shoes, he's been educated in the classrooms of Alexandria. He has listened to some of the greatest teachers in the history of mankind in the course of his lifetime. And and not only in the world at that time, but in all of history. And he'd been born and raised in a city with a library containing 700,000 books. And yet, when he realized that he had something to learn from these two very humble servants of the Lord. He was not only willing to do so, but eager to do so. And it's a great characteristic in any person's life, and especially in a life like his, to be eager to learn from anyone and everyone who could teach him. And as a result of his teachableness and his humility, We're told in verses 27 and 28 that he became an exalted man. It's because he was a humble man that he became a promoted man, a God God then able to entrust an even greater place of influence within the body of Christ. And when the day came, it allowed the Christian leadership, verse 27, in Ephesus to then heartily recommend him by letter to Corinth, as a truly spiritual uh, man. And in Corinth, we're told in verses 27 and 28, he had a tremendous and wonderful influence for uh, the Lord. 
and became a great encouragement to those who love the Lord, and he became a great apologist for the Christian faith there, showing the Jews there from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Apollos teaches us that it is supremely this thing called humility that will ultimately have the single greatest say in where we end up in life and in the effectiveness and influence of our Christian service. Many years ago, I remember a Calvary Chapel pastor at a Calvary Chapel conference, he got up and, and he declared of a, a survey at the time in which they had served, surveyed Christians all over the United States, asking them, what do you want most in a pastor? And you can imagine what would come to people's minds uh, in that. And the interesting thing was, the answer was not education or eloquence or charisma, but humility. They said, the one thing we want in our pastor and in our leaders is humility. And that survey was merely confirming the thing that the Holy Spirit's teaching us in this passage concerning Apollos. But what's true of a congregation and true in a pastor is also true of life in general. It's true of a boss. It's true of a co-worker. Uh, it's true of a teammate on a basketball team or any athletic team, a husband or a wife, a fellow student, a father, a mother, a child, a neighbor. And it is the humble person people like to be around. It is the humble person that people like to be around. It's the humble person that makes it easy for other people to root for them in life and in their calling and in their ministry. And then most significantly, I think for us as Christians, it's the humble person that people are willing to give a place of influence to in their lives. And concerning influence in the kingdom of God, it is unfailingly true over the long haul that our advancement in that kingdom and the influence that God gives us in that kingdom is determined ultimately and supremely by our humility. Far, far above our natural talent or God-given gifts or even His calling upon our lives. Because without humility, over time, all of those things will be destroyed. All of those things will become shipwreck in our lives. But I think about how wonderful it is when a man or a woman of God comes to know this sooner than later in life, and when we come to realize that there's no need to choose between the one or the other, but that both of them can be present in our lives at the same time. Great natural talent, God-given gifts and calling as well as humility, and then to see in Apollos the wonderful dynamic that occurs in a person's life when both those things are true of their life. The influence that God has then able to give to them and entrust to them, whether they're a church leader or a father or a mother or as a neighbor or in the workplace or at school. 
And all of this is consistent with what is taught in the Bible from one end uh, of it to the other. From the book of Proverbs, chapter 1, a wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. So we ask ourselves here tonight, what is our reaction when people find it necessary to correct us, or they find it necessary to further instruct us on something that we're clearly not as well instructed as we need to be, whether about an occupation or whether about uh, life um, it's, uh, itself. And to understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 9. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. The apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. I'll just stop right there. Now we'll continue the passage. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And James makes the same point in James chapter 4. But he, that is God, gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Jesus himself taught, Matthew chapter 23, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And you have the subject of pride and the subject of humility. They're huge subjects um, in the Bible. And so in closing here, I just want to make three observations concerning them as they relate to our passage uh, here. And at first for us as Christians all Christians, and certainly in our areas of ministry, we should always possess a strong hunger and a strong desire to continue to grow all of the days of our life. And it is an expression of spiritual pride when a Christian stops growing spiritually. And this happens all of the time where I take my Christian life into my own hands and I decide this is as mature as I want to become. This is as far as I am willing to be taught and to grow uh, in, in my uh, Christian uh, life. And so a person will stop after one year, five years, or ten years, and they'll stay in that spiritual immaturity the remainder of their life. And it's an expression of self-will, and it's an expression of pride. And we see Apollos, he's eager to continue to grow uh, in his life and in his ministry. You remember that it was uh, the Apostle Paul, as he wrote uh, his letter to the church at Philippi, he's 30 years old as a Christian. He's been saved for 30 years. He's been in active ministry uh, as an apostle for 25 years. And he wrote to that church, not that I have already attained or am I, all, I am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, 
forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. And ultimately, as he's at the, uh, at the end of his life, before he's going to be martyred, he recognizes it to be true of his life. And he wrote to Timothy, and he said, Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for the ministry. And Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Bring the cloak. It's cold here now that I, brought, I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments, the desire to continue to grow in the Word of God. And when God and the Bible are the subjects, and Jesus is, and Christ-likeness is the practical standard that we desire to achieve within our lives, there will always be room for growth. Uh, every a day of our lives, and there's no excuse for uh, ceasing to do so. I don't say that in an accusing way at all. I just simply say it because the standard needs to be held high in this regard. Second, we learn here, as we've already discussed, that humility is expressed in a willingness to be taught. And, and in being teachable, no matter what our natural talent is, our education, our gifting, our calling, always maintaining the willingness and the eagerness to be taught. And then third and finally, humility is expressed in a willingness to be taught by God through whatever human instrument He chooses uh, to teach us uh, through and uh, uh, not only those who are uh, above me in terms of natural talent or calling or gifting or experience, but also those that we might excel in terms of education and life experience and talent and even spiritual influence by virtue of God's calling, those from perhaps a lower station in life. Sometimes we can say to God, God, I don't mind you teaching me what I need to be taught here, but I really mind who you're using to teach me this. And true humility will be thankful for whoever God uses to uh, teach us and, uh, and, and will receive uh, that instruction. It isn't unlikely that Apollos uh, excelled uh, Aquila and Priscilla and all of these different areas in his life, and yet Apollos possessed the humility that allowed him to be corrected and instructed by them in spiritual things. And the result was he became even more fruitful uh, in, in, his, in God's call upon his life. And so Apollos was an educated man. He was an eloquent man, a man with a fervent spirit, a man with a great theme, a man mighty in the Scriptures, and it's astonishing really, but all of those things would have been wasted if he wasn't also a teachable man, if he wasn't also a humble man. And it's our humility and teachableness that will greatly affect for good 
where we end up in life and where we end up in our Christian service. And humility and teachableness will give us an influence for the kingdom of God that talent and education never will in and of themselves uh, alone. And if you were to force me to bet upon one or the other, uh, the person who has tremendous talent and uh, education and skill and eloquence and all of these things, as opposed to the person who lacks those things in, in a great degree compared to the other person, but who is all, also and rather humble and teachable, uh, I would always bet on the humble and on the teachable. And so when we think of Apollos as Christians, we can tend to think of him solely in terms of his eloquence, his great ability uh, to speak, but it was hu his humility that made him great. And so may we always be reminded of it when we hear his name. When, if you're going to be a pastor in the circles that I'm a pastor in and with my spiritual heritage, one of the things that we were and are reminded of in terms of uh, bringing uh, our Christian service to an awful crash and burn is to be careful of three great things. And they're mentioned in the Old Testament and they're mentioned in the New Testament related to leaders. And we would encapsulate them in, in a modern way of being careful uh, to be, uh, deal in integrity with money, with women, the opposite sex, and with pride. And when people, leaders, uh, uh, crash and burn related to uh, inappropriate relationships with the opposite sex or a mishandling of money, it's almost always very, very public, um, and uh, the, uh, the, the judgment, the justice comes quickly. And the problem with pride is that pride gets a pass so often, especially in our culture that likes to uh, extol uh, pride. But I suspect that we would be very, very shocked if we knew how many people God has to sideline for a time because of pride. And so this encouragement from the life of Apollos uh, is an important one. How many men and women find themselves in this great gifting by God, great eloquence, all of these things, and growing in influence for the kingdom of God and God's use, to them, uh, use of them, and all of a sudden it comes to a screeching halt. And for the life of us, we can't figure out why. And so often we've begun to touch the glory, or we've begun to think it has something to do with us rather than the grace of God. And we wonder at the silence all around us, and we don't... It takes us a while to realize we're on the shelf until we're humbled in that position and learn this lesson of being teachable and humble. But it isn't just pastors and it isn't just leaders in a church. Let me ask us tonight in the privacy of our own hearts, is your marriage in great danger tonight? And is great damage being done in that marriage because of your pride, your unwillingness to listen, 
your unwillingness to be teachable and to humble yourself in that relationship. And the terrible, terrible damage can be done. I speak to myself too. Terrible damage can be done in, in this area of pride or in the parent-child relationships, the pride of a parent toward a child. And the child is in an unequal situation and the parent is dealing with it, uh, the child out of pride and I and me and all of this and they don't realize the damage that is being done to that child out of pride. And it works the other way too. The pride of a child toward the parents and the great damage that is done in, in that direction. How many friendships are destroyed uh, because of the pride and uh, one of the people involved in that uh, in that uh, friendship to where it ultimately ends up destroying the friendship altogether. It's always good to be reminded of how destructive uh, pride is. And it's always good to have a little time to just stop, not to look for something that isn't there in our lives, but to stop and to think between us and the Holy Spirit, to allow Him to search our lives for our treatment of people, how we view people, all the way from our spouse to into the far reaches of the culture and the city that we live in, and allow our lives to be searched for that pride, whether we are still teachable and we view ourselves with humility in our considerations of other people and in our interactions with other people. So I ask the worship team to come forward now and lead us in just a little bit of worship to close our service and give us a little bit of time to just uh, praise the Lord and worship Him, thank Him for His call upon our lives, thank Him for this example of this tremendous instrument of His by the name of Apollos, and at the same time allow Him to make any kind of changes in our lives in this regard that might be needed uh, in, in the light. Uh, of his word.